from runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 148 with guest Clint Huffman. Recorded Tuesday, January 12th, 2010. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. That is me. Hello. And here we are again, and, you know, this is a shooting fish in the barrel kind of show because our friend Clint Huffman has come back. Right, yeah. So we, we, we always get something good out of Clint, don't we? Well, he's the guy who really tipped us off on, you know, all the cool stuff going on at Perfmon and PAL. And, uh, exactly. I mean, Clint, I, don't, I think you've been here too much. You don't qualify for a bio. We're just going to start talking to you. <laughs> Yeah. We're just going to jump yeah, right Yeah, I'm just like a regular. Just give me the usual. It's just the usual. <laughs> and now it's Clint Huffman's section. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Clint <laughs> Huffman. Take it away, Clint. What have you been working on, Clint? Okay. So, yeah, I've been, the past few months, uh, I've been working on some interesting stuff. Uh, well, it's actually more, more than a few months, past couple of years. But uh, I've been working on uh, a lot of Hyper-V performance issues. And, um, you know, I think I've got enough to that. I've, I've kind of reached a critical mass with this information, and uh, it's actually taken. I'm actually thinking about a point where I can actually say, yeah, these are good things to do, and these are relatively bad things to do, or things to watch out for in, in Hyper-V. And Hyper-V being kind of a uh, kind of a buzz thing right now, or at least more specifically virtualization. I'll just say that um, that is becoming more of a buzzword. I figured it might be a good topic to talk about uh, for the show. So. Uh, and I, I got to presume there's like a PAL instrument pack for Hyper-V now. Well, yeah, there was. Uh, there is, well, there is, actually. In PAL version 1.3.5, that's out right now, the latest uh, 1X version, yes, there's a Hyper-V uh, threshold file in there that uh, looks at the Hyper-V hypervisor counters. Um, it needs a lot more work. I've learned a lot since then. So in PAL 2.0, I hope to uh, give it a nice overhaul. Cool, yeah. Where do we see uh, performance issues when you're virtualizing user Hyper-V? Is it in great big installations, uh, single machine type of uh, situations, everything in between? Where, where do you focus most of your energy? Yes, <laughs> is the answer to that question, Greg. <laughs> um, but mostly what I've, I've been using it for is one here at home. I use it for uh, for you know, reproducing problems. I've got my own virtual biz talk lab here that uh, I use with Hyper-V and everything like that, so it's, it's nice there. But also, but mainly what I've been focusing as far as job-wise is really enterprise uh, services, uh, just, you know, large biz talk installations that just need to scale out. Uh, web servers are really popular as far as virtualizing them. Um, but, so I've been basically dealing with the small personal level and the high enterprise level, and I'm sure people are doing a little bit in between there. Uh, I mean, Hyper-V was originally intended for kind of uh, kind of uh, backward compatibility. You know, if you've got an old, you know, NT4 box or, you know, something that's really old that you need to migrate and it's still considered critical, then you want to do the hardware consolidation, you know, and put all that in Hyper-V and, and things of that nature. So that was the original intent, yet I haven't really heard of anybody really doing that yet. Um, but maybe that's just what I do uh, 
takes away from that. So what are the common problems that you see or that you're dealing with from a performance perspective or or whatever kind of problems you tend to run up against? Yeah, the, the uh, well, I deal with, uh, here lately it's been mainly focused on Hyper-V performance. Um, there might be other problems that people have had as far as compatibility maybe and such, but uh, my, I, my area has been, been performance related. And uh, I've got a couple of tips and things I wanted to talk about on the show here that uh, about what to watch out for. Now, granted, most of this, these tips and tricks that I'm about ready to tell you are really from a guy named Tony Volm, who uh, was who uh, was previously the um, dev lead for Hyper-V Performance and on the on the product team. He's now moved. To, he's still with the product team. He's with the Windows product team now, but he deals with uh, more battery life and performance tuning of, of Windows itself. So, But he's still the kind of the de facto source for Hyper-V and performance issues. So where do we start? Okay, so really the, the thing is, is making sure that you've done all the best practices for Hyper-V. Uh, primarily speaking here, make sure that, you, uh, that you're aware that you're going to have a performance hit by going to a virtualized environment. Uh, anytime you add an extra layer of operating system like this, you're always going to incur a little bit of a cost. Uh, the sure. cost really varies. Uh, most people see about uh, 10 to 20 percent degradation in performance, depending on what kind of application you're doing. Um, there's really, you know, as far as with virtualization, I mean, there's really no like tuning per se that you can do, but there are a lot of best practices that you can follow in Hyper-V environments to uh, make things a little bit better. One of the main things to know about this is that uh, you're going to clock in the, get, the virtual guest is going to be skewed slightly. What that means is something like percent processor time is going to look a little uh, it's going to be look look a little higher in the virtual guest, but on the host machines, um, place the the processor time that you see from the hypervisor counters is going to appear to be a little bit less. So if you're at 100% CPU in the virtual guest, it may look like 90% CPU uh, as far as real processor time at the physical level from that virtual machine. So there's a little bit of a skew there as far as that. And you said the the Hyper-V counters here because Task Manager lies to you in the Hyper-V situation. That is correct. Uh, Where where did you hear that? Well, I'm running enough Hyper-V now to know... It, well, the why saving grace has been SCVMM, which is the the System Center um, Virtual Machine Manager gives you better numbers than I'm looking at the System Center Virtual Machine Manager numbers and going, how come Task Manager doesn't show this? <laughs> well, I was wondering. I thought you were reading my my blog there, Richard. Oh, I read your blog too, <laughs> sir. Yeah, so I've got actually have a blog entry of uh, do not use Task Manager in a Hyper-V environment or, or something along those lines. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it, uh, looking at Task Manager on the root partition, which is really the host machine, uh, is not going to give you the true processor overhead. Uh, you actually have to look at the Hyper-V hypervisor counters, or in this case, the, the SCVVM, to actually see the, the true numbers of what's actually uh, going over there. The matter of fact, if you go to percent processor time, on the host machine, that will also lie and only give you the processor time of that machine. And the reason it's like that is like the root partition of the host is actually considered like another virtual machine running on top of the hypervisor at this point. And that's why you, you see it kind of stand alone on its processor time. Right, so you're literally just seeing the, the processor time that the host machine consumes. You don't see the guest machines at all without going into perfmon and going specifically what's the counter hyper v 
Uh, it's Hyper-V, Hypervisor, Logical Processor, the percent total runtime. And that'll give you the accurate numbers. Yeah, that'll be the physical processors as far as what they're actually using on the box. And, uh, yeah, you could have your physical processors at 100% CPU, and you look at the task manager on your root partition, and you're like, oh, look, it's only consuming 5% across all eight processors. And while in reality, it's it's just overwhelmed. Yeah, and that, what's sneaky about that is it can be completely concealing. I, one of the things I've struggled with is understanding when I should add another processor to a guest OS, which I can do now. Right, I can actually say, "Hey, yes. give you give them two logical processors." So, just trying to figure out when does that make sense to do has been fairly challenging to instrument. Yeah, the um, yeah, the way it works, and uh, pe- a lot of people assume that the proce- the virtual processors are like affinitized to a physical processor. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So I'm not saying unfortunately, but that's just not how it's architected. The virtual processors are really just thread issuers, where the virtual guest will simply get a lot of threads that, that need to have attention to the processors, and then those threads are then like low-balanced across the physical processors. So, for example, let's say you have four physical processors on the physical box, and you have a virtual machine that has one virtual processor. If that virtual processor goes 100% CPU, you'll see the physical processes distribute that load, and you'll see about 25% CPU across that, right, across right. all four processes. So they, and it, all that's happening here is that Hyper-V is sharing the threads across these different processors. It's presuming there's a bunch of threads running, which almost certainly there are. Yes, exactly, and that's, that's absolutely correct, is that you know, any one thread cannot run on, uh, can only run on one processor at a time. Right. So even more so, what does it actually mean to add another logical processor to a Hyper-V instance? Well, in that case, you would, because if you want that virtual machine to use more CPU, you have to give it another processor, because it's only consuming up, up, to, up to what one virtual processor can handle and then distributing that. At this point, you're only using 25% of the total amount of CPU possible on the physical on the box. Given that we had four cores. Given four cores, precisely, right. yes. If you add another virtual processor now, all the if you're still in the four four physical processor box that'll all go up to now 50% because now you have two virtual processors consuming 100% CPU and dividing that amongst four processors that now ends up being 50 So I started out thinking, so this is just sort of an arbitrary value how fast one logical processor can run, but does it is Hyper-V actually smart enough to map that power of that logical processor to one of the physical processors performance-wise so that it does work out perfectly given four cores, 100% of a logical equals 25% of the four cores. Are you, are you leading me there, Richard? Do you already know the answer here? I, no, I'm just trying <laughs> that was, that was to... my question too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to understand, my friend, honestly. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so uh, I, I think you know more than, than you let on sometimes. So, uh, Yes, yeah, so there is a way that there's these things called enlightenment that uh where if a virtual guest happens to be, you know, quote unquote enlightened, uh that means that it's more hyper V aware or aware of the hypervisor. And what it can do is these it can do hyper as they call hyper calls straight to the hypervisor, completely bypassing the root partition or the host in this case. So yes, it can make it much more efficient. But there's a cost to that. And the cost to make that happen is you really have to have the guest on Windows Server two thousand eight. Okay. 
So and it's such a great name, Enlightenments, uh, right? Yeah, if I, I am yeah. a, I am cognizant of a higher power. <laughs> Goes back to our earlier conversation. So the the only way really to be enlightened is to use Hyper V, and the only way to be enlightened with Hyper V is to basically give in and go all and go Windows Server two thousand eight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we I've been on several engagements so far where the guest was Windows Server two thousand three. And they're like, can we get any better efficiency out of this? And I'm like, well, not unless we go to Windows Server 2008 to make it more efficient, get better response times, et cetera, and from the virtual machine. Uh, assuming that there's no other bottleneck, because uh, that's one thing that I go on site for first to say, okay, are, are, is the virtual environment, you know, as far, is that the virtual environment the actual bottleneck in the entire solution? Right. Because right. if you have a physical web server, that is using a back-end SQL box, and you have a virtual web server that's using the exact same SQL box, well, you know, if SQL server is the bottleneck, then the two servers are going to perform the same the same way. You know, you're not really going to see much difference. And so a lot of that effort really comes down to, you know, it's not really a Hyper-V or virtualization problem. It's really about identifying where your bottleneck is. So that's the first thing I do when on site. Yeah, and I do a great conference session where I actually scale up a web site from one server to two and get no performance gain at all because the database is completely buried. That is the linchpin. What resource do you run out of most often in a Hyper-V situation? Uh, well, that's always going to be dependent on your application. Right. So, I mean, depending on your needs of what you're doing with, um, so just like any application, it really comes down to what resources does it use and yeah. is that resource, uh, you know, pretty much consumed. Here lately, though, my past couple of issues have really been processor. Really? And I'm actually quite amazed by that. Yeah. Yeah, because the processor is the, like, the lowest man on the totem pole for me. I find if it's SQL Server, we're out of drive performance. If it's if it's IIS, we're typically running low on memory. Like there's, there's sort of these the things that it eats when it gets really busy are fairly consistent. And processor yeah. never seems to be the one. I know, and I always teach process. Whenever I teach Windows performance analysis, I always teach processor last because it's always the guy holding the bag. You know, if you have a really bad disk performance problem, then it's going to eat up memory to compensate for that. You know, the system cache consuming. You know doing kind of, kind of dirty writes and holding all that in the memory, which now becomes a memory problem. And then the processor then has to, you know, kind of compensate for all of this by working harder to manage all the memory in the disk I.O. So, yeah, it's actually pretty rare to see uh, processors uh, being bottlenecks. Um, this, uh, these particular applications really were not, uh, weren't, weren't really optimized, I guess, for thread handling. Most of these applications I've been dealing with where is what they they spawn up new processes, really short-lived processes that only last maybe a few seconds, and then do their work and then then die off. And so by changing that to a thread model, they should get better performance. I typically see these on ports from from Unix boxes where they where the Unix is really good at spawning processes, but not so much threads. While on Windows, it's more the inverse of threads versus uh, new process. Right. The overhead of constructing a process is high enough that you, you're not getting a good performance benefit for being doing it that way. Right, right. All right. And, and of course, it makes sense to me that we would now lean, because processes have had an easy time of it, they've always been so much faster than everything else in the box, we're starting to lean more on processor-demanding type things. So virtualization is inherently processor-centric. It's just that's where all the work ends up going. And and 
throw in that extra whammy of, and it's bloody hard to instrument. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> well, we do have Xperf, which definitely helps us out a lot in identifying where root cause is. Uh, so, all right, let's talk about Xperf. What is it, and what? It, why do we care? Uh, yeah, I want to do go with that can, that can of worms. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well... Uh, yeah, Xperf is, uh, the Microsoft Xperf comes with the Microsoft Windows Server 2008, um, performance toolkit. And, uh, it's a tool that's been in development over 10 years by the Windows product team. Uh, and what it does is it basically collects ETW information or event tracing for Windows, collects this data information, which is lots of events going on in Windows, and then basically puts it together in kind of a Perflon style Format to say here, giving all these events, here's the relevant information that we can we can provide to you with that, and it's, you can actually see like the like for example the on the platter of the, the like the disk platter, you can actually see the head moving back and forth, doing like a whole bunch of sequential writes all over the place. So it's a, it's an amazing um, technology. So is this a replacement for Perfbond? You think? No, no. Um, hi, the uh, Xperf is in addition to think of Xperf as the microscope, you know, for really digging into a very very specific problem, you know, as far as re- gathering a massive amount of data very quickly, and then Perfmod would be kind of the macroscope, I guess, or the or kind of going back a little bit, saying, okay, you know, because you can gather performance counters for hours, days, or weeks, or months, right? But you can't gather. ETW data for hours, weeks, or months. It just, you just, it's really designed for, for short-term gatherings. With that said, you can configure XPerf to do what's called a revolving buffer, like a, where you basically say like 100 megabyte buffer and RAM is yours and completely keep overriding that data until finally you have a problem and now you can stop XPerf and then look at the data and see what it has to say. Right. It becomes your sort of black box recorder. It only has the last 20 minutes of the machine, but that's the important 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. When we were dogfooding uh, Windows 7 and Vista uh, internally at Microsoft, uh, we would have these uh, these things running constantly. Uh, they had a little applet that we ran doing this. And as it was running all the time, and then all we had to do is, like, you know, when we, if you had a problem, but when we had a problem, you would hit, say, stop the collection. I was opening Outlook, you know, or doing something in Outlook. Type that in, hit submit, and then that that ETL file, which is the event trace log file, gets sent off to the product group or whomever it was uh, really needed for, and you know Outlook team maybe, and then they would analyze it and compile, um, say, hey, yeah, you know, most people in the company are having this problem, performance problem, and that's huh. really what Windows Seven kind of came about was all that work we did in Vista. That's awesome. Okay. So Xperf drills into particular detailed uh, aspects of the machine so you can sort of get a grasp when you really got serious problems there. Did, and did that really help in the Hyper-V context too? It does, yes. Uh, matter of fact, most of the Hyper-V uh, performance analysis that we do is uh, using with using Xperf. And you want to do it uh, primarily on the, uh, the root partition, the, the Server 2008 box, to see what's going on there. Uh, yeah, great stuff. I, I've actually been able to identify. I can actually see... Uh, a VHD that was fragmented just from the, uh, the disk analysis. You know, I was like, oh, look, like your VHD file is fragmenting, you know, and just because I could see the head kind of swiveling back and forth trying to do these sequential reads. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and that's another uh, common complaint I've heard with, uh, with Hyper-V is that you, so you reach a point where they, well, you explain it, Clint. 
What's hap- what is this defragmentation thing? Oh, okay. Well, defrag is, uh, fragmentation is where basically uh, pages of memory, either on the disk or in memory, get fragmented. And kind of think of the like a little bit of speculating where let's say you have a completely nice you know sheet of paper, and then you're like, okay, I've allocated all, you know 100 percent of my memory or 100 percent of this space on this paper. And then when you start saying, okay, now I want to free some memory, and you start, you know, poking holes in the piece of paper, and you got all these holes in this piece of paper, and then that, uh, you know, all these little finger-sized holes, and you got them all over the place to the point where maybe you have more than 30% free space in this memory because of all these little holes you poked into it. But now you've got this big block, this, you know, four-by-four four block that you now need to put into this memory space on this paper, you know, through a hole of some kind. But yet you don't have any holes big enough or at least contiguous holes that are right. big enough to put that block in. And now you're in what's called a, 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 a heap fragmented at that point. And you can't put the block in there. Uh, I know I'm talking memory fragmentation, but the same thing can happen with disk where, right. you know, if it's not contiguous, then it's, it doesn't perform well. And, and how do you recover from that? Defrag. You run the defrag tool um, in Windows or a third party, and it just basically puts everything together in nice contiguous blocks, so that when the disk, the, when, it, when the head reads off the disk, it just reads it all in one 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 uh, one rotation, basically, or, or however long it takes. So we should be running a defragger on the host OS to defrag VHD files. Well, I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> right, I'm... I'm just telling you what defrag does instead stuff. I would say uh, if the disk response times on the roots is having some some problems, meaning it's where it's greater than 15 milliseconds, um, you know, on average for doing reads and writes. And if the VHD file seems to be the one hit the most during this time frame, and if you've done a defrag analysis and the VHD file is, appears to be most fragmented, yeah, you probably wanted to defrag it at that point. The reason I'm a little hesitant to say doing defrag is because if you're using SANS, which is it's just common to use SANS with uh, yeah. you know, Hyper-V yep. environments and any enterprise environments, sometimes the SAN gets worse performance if you defrag it. So uh, I would say always consult with your SAN vendor or whatever hardware vendor you've worked with and make sure that defragging is the right thing for you. Gotcha. You actually, do you run this defrag um, task within the guest or in the host? Oh, um, good point. Uh, I would guess if you're seeing bad performance in both, sure, both do try it in both. Uh, do you know something about this that I don't, Richard? No, no, I'm just curious because, it, you know, when you talk about the the disk from a guest perspective, it's not like you really have control over the media per se. The host sort of decides where things are actually going. It's virtualizing all that to the guest. So I would think the host is the only thing that control could control it. But by that token, if I'm running a defrag on the on the host, can I actually leave the guest operating while I do that? I have I have never tried that. Ah, it's just it's an issue. And of course, because the correct answer, I think, most of the time with the SAN is you can't run a defragger. It won't help. Right, they, yeah. they, the you don't is have optimizing contr- for you. Yeah. yeah, it writes its stuff out on the disk in its own way. But it, yeah, this is an interesting, an area that's fascinating to me. Just the consequences of this and how you actually undo it intelligently. And can you defrag um, an, an active VHD file, you know, while it's running in Hyper-V on the host? I would guess that you probably can't. Yeah, it'd probably be locked down or locked by the operating system or something. I, I don't know. I've never tried it. 
more more importantly, though, you probably want to, if you're having disk problems in a guest machine, say you virtualize SQL Server that requires massive amounts of disk I/O, you really need to be using what's called pass-through disk. And the way pass-through really works is really you're you're giving the LUN itself, the physical LUN represented to the operating system. So right. you're actually the way you do is you actually go to disk management on the root partition, the host machine. And you actually right-click on the physical LUN, the physical disk, and say offline. Right. And so the, the, the operating system, the root partition, no longer sees that disk, uh, or at least not online at least. Then you go to the Hyper-V manager, and now you, you go to the settings of the virtual machine, and now you say assign that LUN, that, that physical disk, to the virtual machine now. And that's supposed to uh, give you a lot better performance. We we did it for SQL Server, and um, it actually did a it made a huge difference in performance for us. So, so physical disk um, on the host assigned to a virtual machine because you've basically allocated it just for that. Right, and I suggested that for my last customer. Unfortunately, they're like, well, we we can't really. They don't want to put another physical disk attached to the server to do that. Right. So they stuck with VHDs that case. Hmm, okay. uh, so yeah, that would give you much better efficiency because now it goes straight to the hypervisor versus going through the, uh, assuming it's a light stuff too, that it, it won't go through the, the root partition or host anymore. Yeah, it avoids the virtualization step and owns the resource. You see the same thing with NICs now, right? That you literally assign a NIC to a, a certain VM and and it owns it. It's no longer virtualizing the, the networking. Uh the way it works is that you actually assign the NIC, the physical NIC, to a virtual network okay. in Hyper-V, and then you assign the virtual machines to that network. So, yeah, you could do a one-to-one ratio there. Right. But it's still essentially, it still has that layer of abstraction. It's still sharing it. Yes. So you can assign multiple virtual machines to a given NIC, even though you've assigned the NIC into the pool. Like, I find the Hyper-V networking more complicated. Like it, it does take some time to figure out what am I doing with this? Is the host using it as well? Is this sharing within the net, within the machines in the Hyper-V setting? There's some interesting stuff there. Yeah, we actually have an example in, uh, in a, a VMware ESX environment where uh, where this media system or media server that the uh, customer had uh, had all four virtual machines going through the same physical NIC. Right. And, and they're streaming audio and video and stuff like that. And so you actually see the output queue length on the network adapters just go way up to like 60. I mean, 60 packets huh. constantly waiting to go on the wire. Wow. And were they watching that from the host? From the um, from the guest perspective. Oh, okay, but yeah, that yeah. that's that's a busy nick. <laughs> Two ways about it. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, I'm far more used to, back in the ten base T days. It wasn't that surprising when you backlogged a nick, but I think we've just gotten sort of lazy with gigabit nicks now that they've got so much headroom we just never fill them up. I mean, when when have you ever looked at network performance and not seen like four percent used? You know, it, it's oh, never know. busy. Yeah. But as far as constructing and deconstructing TCP IP sessions, now well, that's what gets you. Right. The latency of creating and destroying those connections is what the, the big killer nowadays is. But yeah, and now you can buy substantially more expensive NICs where they offload that work onto the NIC and it's really fast at it. Yeah, and, that, and Hyper-V does, can take advantage of that somewhat. There's this thing called virtual memory queues uh, that uh, can help take advantage, that Hyper-V can take advantage of. There's actually a white paper on it. Um, where you can use chimney offload and virtual memory queues, uh, either one or the other, 
uh, to uh, to really take advantage of the hardware of the NIC. Uh, otherwise, uh, it may not. If you can't take advantage of that, it, it will slow things down a little bit um, with performance. Um, now, the virtual guests are actually at a 10 gigabit connection, right? A virtual 10 gigabit connection. And if you actually do a file transfer from guest to guest on the same physical box, uh, they actually do a memory map versus uh, a, a memory versus a uh, through a network host, basically. And so it can actually be pretty fast in, in a, lot, a lot of cases. Uh, but going off the box can actually take good care of the hardware and actually be uh, pretty fast if you can take advantage of that. And on, along those lines, you want to use what's called synthetic drivers or synthetic devices versus um, uh, what was the other thing? Physical? Called, uh, uh, emulated. Emulated. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I mean by that is uh, when you, whenever you use a network adapter, um, I think you have, you actually may have ran into this too, uh, Richard, where you want to use a, uh, when you create a new network adapter, you want to use, that's called a synthetic one, but if you go to the legacy network adapter, that's considered an emulated one. Right. That's not as fast as far as performance. I ran into a, a piece of hardware where it, uh, it would, the synthetic one wouldn't work, but the emulated one did. Yes, and for backward compatibility. Right. Yeah. I also ran into that interesting, the interesting problem where Hyper-V does optimize to the processor, and I have a, an AMD server and an Intel server, and that meant that portability didn't work automatically anymore. I couldn't just use SCVMM, point to a, a VM and say, put that on the other machine, and go, ah, they got different processors, sorry. Yeah. But there's actually... the other caveat... Yeah, go ahead. There go ahead. is actually a switch to say, put this in compatibility mode so it would be portable between processors, but you lose a big chunk of performance when you do that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> along those lines, there's also a technology called SLAT, second-level address translation, uh, that's in the latest processors. And uh, AMD calls this feature rapid virtualization indexing. It's on their Phenom and Opteron processors. Oh, yeah. So and so that's supposed to help with uh, making it a lot faster. And uh, Intel versions of it is on the Nahalem based processors and Xeon's uh, 5500 and above, uh, 5500 series. Uh, their Intel i or Intel Core i7 desktops also have uh, the slat features. Right. So giving them an extra boost and uh, processor efficiency. I have not seen the performance of these processors directly yet. Um, but uh, the technology is what I hear is out there. Funny, I got one of each. I've got Opterons, I've got some Xenon 5550s, and I just put an i7 machine together as a new workstation. So I guess I'm going to experience all of this. And you're running Windows Server 2008 as a guest? Uh, on, on some of the machines, yes. Okay, because the Server 2008 box should be getting the better performance, being quote-unquote enlightened. <laughs> yeah. Hyper-V aware, effectively, taking, right? taking advantage of it, yeah. It's going to yeah. be interesting to try all of that. It's so, so I could spend all my day just testing this stuff. I have so much fun with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Clint, I think we're about out of time. Any final words, places folks should be looking about Hyper-V performance? Oh, um, so Tony Volm's blog, uh, spelled, Volm is spelled, uh, Tony Volm is T and then V-O-E-L-L-M. I want to make sure that he gets credit for a lot of this work because uh, he's got a fantastic blog up there about how to do Hyper-V performance. So, uh, also, UN Fairweather uh, and I did a lot of work and uh, on BizTalk and Hyper-V performance. So, just you can search for our names. It's up on MSDN about doing BizTalk and Hyper-V, and we we talk a lot about um, 
normal everyday Hyper-V things for general operating system performance as well. So that's a good one. Um, there's more information out there um, as far as tuning um, Hyper-V. I only kind of touched on the major ones. So, but I plan on doing a blog uh, specifically on Hyper-V performance here pretty soon. And my blog is uh, blogs.technet.com slash Clint H, spelled C-L-I-N-T-H. And for a final word, hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Clint. <laughs> Thanks, Clint, for coming on the show again, and we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.